Turn your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, a word from the wise in Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Stupid is as stupid does was a headline of an ABC 2020 special. I mean, how dumb can you really get? Charlotte, North Carolina, one of the biggest cash robberies anytime, anywhere. They stole $17 million in cash. And these weren't big bills. These were ones, fives, tens, and twenties. Literally, more than 2,000 pounds of money was in the highs. And they did buy a lot of wonderful things with the cash, like Velvet Elvis, you know, uh, having money doesn't buy you good taste necessarily. <laughs> U.S. Attorney Mark Calloway, who prosecuted the case, said the gang pulled off, they pulled off the robbery, robbery was almost comical that they were so dumb. It all started when Steve Chambers, a hustler with a long history, had kept his eye on the Loomis Fargo Depository in Charlotte, North Carolina. Every day, Loomis Fargo in North Carolina carries around and brings back $20 million in cash. Well, Chambers just approached David Gant, who worked at Loomis, and asked him right off the bat, how would you feel if we robbed Loomis? You could live the way you wanted to. All the things that you ever wanted would be right there at the tip of your fingers. Well, Gant, who gives his explanation sitting in the Charlotte jail, describes how they pulled off the scheme. He said the only other worker at Loomis that evening home. He backed a van into the warehouse and by himself, he loaded up $17 million in ones, fives, tens, and twenties. He was exhausted. The van was full and he simply drove off. I quote the criminal Gant when he says, it was such manual labor to load all the cash, I really felt like I'd earned it by the time I was through <laughs> that evening. He parked the van grabbed $25,000 in cash and headed to Mexico, leaving the van to be intercepted by his accomplice, Steve Chambers, the leader of the comical gang. Of course, they never intended to pay Gant his part. In fact, they tried to kill him before it was over with. And Gant complained, there should have been some trust here between us. Honor amongst thieves? When did that start? Another man was paid $100,000 in bills for driving the van for three miles. His name was Eric Payne. Finally, the van ended up at the home of Steam Chambers. They took the money and loaded it into his kitchen, $14 million. What happened to the rest, you ask? They got so tired of loading the money, they just left $3.3 million in the van parked on the side of the road. Wow, the FBI found the van with three plus million dollars in it. They decided once you got 14 million, it wasn't worth the energy to load up another three million. Their smarts are starting to show up now in the story, isn't it? In less than 24 hours, Steve Chambers and his wife, Michelle, went on a spending spree. 
They moved out of their double wide into a mansion, 5,000 square, 6,000 square feet mansion. They immediately went out on this spinning spree and they bought three tanning beds. I mean, how can you really make it with one? She needed three. They got her three tanning beds, a $10,000 pool table. There was a wine cellar in this 6,000 square foot mansion and Chambers stocked it with Pabst Blue Ribbon beer. The class continues to grow. There was $23,000 worth of cigars purchased, but he didn't know how to put the water in the humidor and the $23,000 worth of cigars ruined. They couldn't have drawn more attention to themselves if they'd shot off flares after the robbery. It's amazing. One night, Steve Chambers is thrown out of a nightclub. The next day, he shows up with a half million dollars in cash and says, if you won't have me here, I'll just buy the place and own it. They went on a purchasing spree, everything from plastic surgeries to velvet Elvises. But the dumbest of all, how dumb should, could she be? His wife, Michelle Chambers, walks into a bank with a briefcase full of cash. It still has the wrappers from the other bank on it. And she asks the teller this question. How much could I deposit before you would need to call the feds in this cash? <laughs> wow. So the bank filed a suspicious activity report, and the rest is history as the comical gang sits in jail. 10%, $1.7 million was never accounted for or found. The rest has been recovered or accounted for. Chris Wallace of 2020 said to the gang, I don't want to insult you, but you have been called America's dumbest criminals. And they replied, oh, we think we're in the top 10 when we look back on it. Gant, as he sits in prison, says, I don't regret a bit of it. I walk through the prison and everybody whispers, there's the million dollar man. You know, says Gant, a lot of people want to talk to me now. I live their dream. Everybody wants to take the money and run. If you're looking for financial counsel, you probably wouldn't go to Steve Chambers and his comical band of criminals. You could go to a lot of individuals in this church, bankers and financial planners and CPAs and attorneys and stockbrokers, folks who give financial advice every single day. But this morning, how would you like to receive wise counsel from the wisest financier the world has ever seen, the wisest man the world has ever seen, King Solomon. The guy who wrote the book literally on international trade, commerce, a diplomat, a strategist, a commercial enterprises. He controlled the trade routes from Egypt, where they would bring the chariots, and Cilicia, from where they would bring the horses. He made money off the Egyptian chariots and the Cilician horses. He was a middleman. The queen of Sheba heard so much about all the riches that he was importing with his Red Sea fleet, which went to Arabia and East Africa. She wanted to know, how do you do it? Solomon explored and exploited Israel's mineral, mineral wealth. Copper was mined and refined. In fact, 1 Kings tells us, 1 Kings 10, 14, the weight of gold which Solomon accumulated one single year was four and a half tons of gold. Can you imagine getting some financial advice from a guy like that? A guy who was so wise that he wrote 3,000 Proverbs. 
Well, look there at Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. Financial advice from the world's wisest man. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Well, let's break down his advice into four parts. First of all, what's the purpose of our stewardship? Verse 9. What's the purpose of our stewardship? Honor the Lord with your wealth. The purpose of our stewardship is to honor the Lord. The guiding principle, the spiritual rule of faith for the life of the believer is we're here, we live our life, steward of all of our time and talents to honor the Lord. Honoring the Lord is the goal of the one focused on cultivating the soul. There are so many areas of life in which American Christians become obsessed to the detriment of our spiritual health. One of them is success. We're driven looking for financial success. And the other is, as we have success, we want financial security. And success and security combine to produce materialism within us. Well, we might not be as foolish as the Carolina gang, but we do. We do have an awful lot of stuff. American stuff. It's that indescribable collection of American paraphernalia. We have so much stuff as Americans that we buy little metal buildings and we put them in our backyard because we, hey, we got some extra stuff we need to put out there. They even have container stores that sell all sorts of containers. So, hey, I need to organize my stuff. And then we cut holes in our hallway or in our garage, that space between the roof and the ceiling. Hey, you can get a lot of stuff up there. When you build the house, put a lot of plywood up there because, hey, I can put some good stuff up there. Someone cleans out the garage while we weren't looking. We'll say, hey, hey, where'd you put all my stuff? We want to know. And occasionally, when we can't possibly put another thing in our storage closets. We have a stuff sale on Saturday. People make it a hobby going to these stuff sales. And well, people come and take our old stuff away and put it with their old stuff. And then they sell the stuff again. And well, there's a lot of stuff going around in American neighborhoods. And if the sale starts at nine o'clock, they will line up at seven o'clock and you'll say, why are you here so early? We don't open till nine. They'll say, Hey, I didn't want all the good stuff to get gone, and so I showed up early. And then after that stuff sale on Saturday, we sit back, sit back and count our cash, and we brag, hey, I made $350 today. Yeah, you paid $2,700 for it retail. Aren't you a financial genius with all your <laughs> marketing? Our children buy smaller houses, and they, they call and say, hey, Can you store some of our stuff in your attic or your garage? In fact, we have such a stuff problem in America, there's an industry of building little storage buildings, and we call it another attic because that space between the roof and the ceiling with a secret stairwell is not enough space. And so we go, we pay $80 a month. We did it one time. We had $380 worth of stuff, and we paid $80 a month for three years to store it. 
until we realize this is a losing enterprise. Just throw it all away and save some money. You'll be ahead. And then we die, and the auctioneer sells our stuff to the highest bidder. We have so much stuff. You ever heard of the Diderot effect? The phrase comes from an 18th century French philosopher, Diderot. Once upon a time, he received as a gift a beautiful new scarlet dressing gown. And therefore, he immediately discarded his old kind of threadbare gown that was so comfortable for this beautiful new scarlet dressing gown. Oh, it was a, it was, it was a thing of grandeur. But his pleasure turned sour, Diderot explains. It's splendor, he says in an essay entitled Regrets on Parting with My Old Dressing Gown caused him to eventually replace all the comfortable furnishings with newer and finer things, and they lack the well-worn features of his old stuff. Harvard economist Juliet Shore recounts, He grew very dissatisfied. Once he had on this beautiful new scarlet dressing gown in the evening, he was dissatisfied with the chair. It it wasn't as beautiful. It didn't match his new gown. And so he had to buy a new chair because he had a new gown. And then he had to buy a new desk. And then he didn't even like the bookcases. And so he had to buy all new furniture in the room to match his beautiful new scarlet dressing gown. You see, Diderot, at the end of the story has lost all of his familiar, well-worn furnishings. He's replaced them with beautiful things, but he finds himself sitting, well, uncomfortably in a brand new room that all started because someone gave him the beautiful gift of a new garment. The Diderot effect. You ever bought one chair and brought it in the house? Set it down and look around the room. Well, that doesn't go with the couch anymore. And what about this rug? It's too old. The Diderot effect. It keeps the American consumer always climbing upward and higher. And over the generations, our houses have doubled in size. In fact, now when you're buying a home, a realtor will hear this comment, which is unthinkable to the rest of the world. The house only has a two-car garage. What are we going to do? Now we want three and four slots to put our stuff in. Our garages are bigger. Our refrigerators have grown. Despite buying all the more things, we find ourselves in just a big financial mess. A man was having an economic discussion with his wife, and he explained to her, they're the haves, which are the rich people, and they're the have-nots, which are the poor people. And she says, well, we're not rich, so we're not the haves, and we're not poor, so we're not the have-nots. And who are we? And he explained, well, honey, we are the middle class. We're the haves who have not yet paid for it. That's the middle class. Juliet Shore, the Harvard senior lecturer, the overspent American says, people have the idea that we can live without things, and yet Juliet Shore says, in reality, we don't live without them. I mean, just take golf clubs, for example. 
We used to just get up with a one wood and whack it off the first tee. You don't do that anymore. No, that won't do. You have to unleash the Ping G425 Max driver, retail $499.99, featuring the exclusive 26-gram tungsten movable weight. Even the golf game is different. Christian psychologist David G. Myers in his book, The Pursuit of Happiness, Who's Happy and Why, has studied happiness and says, though the real income of Americans has doubled over the decades, the happiness rate is still about 33%. Happiness had nothing to do with income, with life savings or education, being young or being old. Happiness was a choice. Jesus faced a rich young ruler who is typical of the average American and congregation in the world. We are the rich young ruler, not the rich in the room, but all of us in this room who have a home and more than one garment of clothes and actually a house in which to park our car. We are the rich people. Jesus saw his eyes were fixed on material things. The riches of this world, and Jesus says, as long as you're that way, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and then you can have the kingdom of God. The purpose of our stewardship is not to honor ourselves with more and more gadgets and toys, but rather to be stewards of what God has entrusted to us. The purpose of our making money is not to wallow in luxury, or play the game of one-upmanship with our neighbors, but that we might be able to honor the Lord. There's a second thing I want you to see. Where does our stewardship come from, 9B? From our wealth or our produce or our product. Our stewardship comes from our wealth or our, our produce. We're not to be greedy and stingy. Rather, we are to be generous, not self-centered, Jesus himself be, said, be on guard against all kinds of greed, Luke 12. There was an ancient monk who was traveling through the mountains, and he came to a brook, and he found a beautiful, wonderful gemstone. It was enormous. It would set you up for life, and he put it into his bag, and he was carrying it along. And he, as he went through the mountain trails, he came across another traveler who was hungry, and he opened up his bag to share his meal with the other traveler who was hungry. And the other traveler saw the beautiful gem and the worth, and he says, can I have that gem there in your bag? Without a thought, the first monk took out the gem, and gave it to the other traveler who went on his way thinking he had his life savings in hand. A few days passed and he trekked down the monk and he returned to Jim and said, oh, I realize the great value of this stone. I want to give it back to you. I want you to give me something else. I want you to give me whatever is within you that allowed you to give me that stone in the first place. There's the third thing I want you to see. What's the priority of our stewardship, 9C? Give to the Lord from the first of all your produce. What's the priority of our stewardship, the first of all your produce? The admonition of Malachi is that we bring the whole tithe to the storehouse, to the place of worship, the church. When it comes to our stewardship, God should be our very first consideration. Before we think about anything, have we given God his portion? 
You know, stewardship to me is pretty straightforward. Do you believe that God has blessed you and given you all that you have? Has he given you your strength to earn a living? Do you believe also that the church is the bride of Christ, the one to whom is given the great commission to win the world with the gospel? If you believe in Christ and you believe in his bride, the church, then there's no other conclusion. If you really believe, you will give. You can give without believing, but you cannot believe without giving. You can give without believing, but you cannot believe without giving. If you and I, if we really believe in Christ, if we really believe in his church, cannot ask others to invest their soul, their eternity, and their spirit, their eternal future in a gospel of which we're not willing to support with the temporal material things today. Here's the fourth thing I want you to see. What's the promise of my stewardship? Look at verse 10. The promise of our stewardship. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. As we are faithful to God, says Solomon, God will be faithful to us. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. If you can't trust God with your material things on this earth, why in the world are you trusting him with your eternal soul? If you can't be obedient to his word about the here and now, then you really don't believe his word about the hereafter, do you? You know, I don't want to limit God's blessings on my life to material things. I don't think as we're faithful that the only thing that God gives us is material things. I certainly don't want to limit God's blessings in my life to that. God has blessed me with three daughters and so far, two granddaughters. He's blessed me with eternal life. He's blessed me with his abiding presence. He has blessed me with his quickening and convicting word. He has blessed me with you, a loving church family. My cup runs over and over and over and over. Until we prioritize God and his kingdom above ping drivers and new cars and more clothes and storage buildings, he really isn't the Lord of our life, is he? Maybe, maybe he's the Lord of our lips, but our pocketbook will tell if he's the Lord of our life. Those are hard words, but I believe they're, they're really true. Let us pray. Oh God, you're the giver of all good gifts. May we always be faithful to return your portion, your portion to your church. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.